Hey there, everyone. This is John up here in SimpleBible.com. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very thankful for you again. And whether you're driving on your way to work or you're doing the dishes, folding laundry, or if you've just set time aside to listen to the program with your family or friend, I'm grateful for it. Thank you for supporting me in this effort, and may God bless you. I'm in the middle of an excellent conversation with Aubrey Ballard about reasonable faith. You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says to always be ready to give a defense or apologia to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that lies within. An apologia doesn't mean that we go around just saying we're sorry all the time, but an apologia is a Greek word for giving a reason or defense. And so our faith is meant to be reasonable, evidence-based, defensible, and not just one where you check your brain at the door of the church house. Now, last week, Aubrey and I discussed the question, does truth exist? And we used biblical evidence as well as extra-biblical evidence, that is, internal proofs from the Word of God, uh, self-authenticating attributes, fulfilled prophecy, scientific foreknowledge, factual accuracy, etc., plus these external proofs, such as archaeological, historical, philosophical, or scientific discoveries that corroborate the testimony of the Scripture. And using these, we consider some of the great questions, specifically four, that help show that the Christian worldview is the most reasonable of all worldviews that are known to mankind. Now, specifically, like I said, we talked last week about does truth exist? And that question uh, can be answered in so many ways, but we decided to consider specifically some of the objections that people might have to absolute truth. You know, uh, people who say there is no truth, or a truth is something different for you than for me, or or that truth simply can't be known. And, and we considered both intra- and extra-biblical evidence to come to the conclusion that, yes, truth does exist, and that it is a self-evident fact, and it's part of establishing a foundation. Today we're going to talk about uh, the question, does God exist? And like I said last week, I had some technical difficulties, recorded some of it at a different sample rate, and therefore a lot of the interview was lost, specifically in the third and fourth question. They're just completely gone. And so uh, I'm not yet for certain how I'm going to end this series that I was able to salvage the vast majority of Aubrey's conversation with me. And so he's going to be the primary answerer in this episode. Now, there is a little bit at the very end that it kind of messed up on us, and so I'll kind of take over just looking at his notes and explaining what he would have said. Uh, in studio with me, and you won't be distracted by some of the voices. So without further ado, let's jump in to asking this second question about reasonable faith. Does God exist? So yes, truth does exist. It's a self-evident fact, and I think it's important to establish that as the foundation, because otherwise we can get through these other questions that we're going to talk about, and it'd be very easy for someone to circle back around and say, well, yeah, but it's true for you, but not true for me. Right, right. Now, I want to point out here to our listeners that uh, we've probably spent a good 10 minutes or so just answering one question. And if you do have the opportunity to study with people, to have a Bible study or have a conversation where you're going to try to engage them in these questions, you might not get through all four of them in one sitting, and that's okay. 
it's good to engage and and have a healthy conversation if it takes one two three four times to get together to do it is better than just trying to blow through them so i'm grateful for us maybe slowing down and chewing on that question a little bit let's consider another one though does god exist so if we've taken the time to establish that it's inconsistent for truth to be relative it needs to be uh, absolute or or true for everyone then the next great question is uh, what about god does he exist how would how would you handle that well as best i can tell jesus and the apostles in the bible argued that this was a self-evident fact mm-hmm. um, and for the greater part of human history people have acknowledged this um, we talked about natural revelation earlier um, and there are verses like psalm 97 and verse 6 that point out that uh, the creation itself is um evidence that's adequate to demonstrate the existence of God. That passage says the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Yeah, but over the past maybe, I don't know, two, three hundred years or so, uh, philosophy, science, if we want to paint such a broad stroke, people are saying science has proven that there is no God or, uh, you know, that that, that science has buried God. And, and you can even just turn on uh, most news outlets or television programs, and you'll find something similar to that, that at least in our culture, there seems to be more of a leaning towards this concept that, that science has proven God wrong. How, how do we counter that? Right. That's definitely how it's built in the media and in, in the classroom sometimes, science and reason versus you know, religious superstition. But you know, saying, quote, science says doesn't prove anything because... Uh, science as a discipline doesn't say anything. Right. Scientists do. Okay. And okay. scientists are people, or you could say the same thing about philosophy. Um, but philosophers and scientists, those are people with bias and with presuppositions. And uh, to be sure, there are some very intelligent people who say there is no God. But there are also some very intelligent people who believe that there is. And, and the point is, a sophisticated vocabulary and technical expertise in a field is not going to solve the fundamental set of problems that come with denying the existence of God that anybody, right. any average Joe like you and me, can see just from our life experience. Um, and I, I think there are people who claim to be totally objective and rational and, and reasonable, but their assumptions, and, and we all have to be careful about this because we all have assumptions, and those can blind a person so that they can't draw a valid conclusion. Mm. Um, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 7, Paul talks about those who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in Romans 1, the people who professing to be wise became fools. And so it does seem like we're living in a culture where that is the case. Well, if I have an open heart, an open mind, if I'm willing, if I want to be honest with truth, right? So if I've, maybe you've challenged me with the previous question about what truth is and, and I have reasoned out for myself that yeah it is consistent to say that truth is is uh, the same for all of us what kind of evidence then would i be looking for that's honest and unbiased and uh you know is is extra biblical in this way to prove that there is a god this natural revelation that we've talked about previously what what kind of evidence should i be looking for one of the most obvious um lines of reasoning or call it an argument if you want to that's been 
pointed out for years and years is the cause and effect argument. Okay. What's that? And it's a powerful argument. Sometimes it's called the cosmological argument, but it basically says the universe is here. We're here. And so it must be explained. Uh, or somebody might phrase it in the form of a question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Mm-hmm. And you see, the universe itself is a grand effect, which is contingent or dependent upon something outside of itself to explain itself. And all of this comes from one of the things we learned in elementary school when we learned about the law of causality or the law of cause and effect. Right, right. And it states, for every material cause, there must be an adequate antecedent uh, cause. I said that wrong. For every material effect, for every material effect, there must be an adequate antecedent cause. Now, that okay. uh, is not something you have to go into a laboratory to, to test. That's something that's demonstrable just from our everyday activity. You can test this out. <laughs> just go outside. And, uh, you know, whenever we see a tree limb move, what do we assume? Well, there must have been a breeze or a squirrel jump from one limb to another. It's just right. we know that things right. don't happen just out of nowhere. There has to be a cause that's adequate to produce that effect. And so if the universe must have a cause, then what caused the universe? That's basically the the cause and effect argument. And there's three different options to answer that question, right? Well, I guess so. I mean, you would have to either say, well, the universe didn't need a cause because the universe is eternal. Um, I would just say here that as far back as the 1970s with, um, you know, people like Dr. Robert Jastrow, uh, astrophysicist, Physicists and astronomers are almost unanimously in agreement that the universe uh, had a beginning. Um, when you're in grade school, uh, you hear about the Big Bang all the time. And, of course, the dating of that, people date that as far back as like 15 billion years. I guess it depends on the year of the textbook you're reading. Right, right. Um, and as Christians, of course, we believe the biblical account of creation. But my point is even the, the people who deny the existence of God acknowledge that the universe must have had a beginning. The material, physical universe had a beginning. And so the universe can't be eternal. Okay. So that's, so that's the options one and two. The universe is eternal, which science is uh, testing. Those who maybe even don't believe in God are testing. It's not eternal, so their conclusion is that it created itself. Is that where we're going? Well, that that's what um, people will have you believe. The, the only problem with that, Jonathan, is a, it's a pretty obvious one. There's no material thing that can create itself. It kind of goes back to one of those self-defeating statements we made. If you say, well, the universe created itself, that doesn't make any sense because it would have had to be here and exist to take that action. But um, some will say it it was created out of nothing. But no material thing can create itself. And you, you just can't attack that statement on the basis of any knowledge that's available to us. And I would say that any attempt to do so even if this is a discussion that is participated in by, uh, you know, uh, astronomers and, and scientists from all different disciplines, whenever you make a statement like that without having any empirical evidence or any, you know, logical uh, analysis, then you're basically wearing the mask of deep wisdom, but you're saying something that we know from our common human experience can't be true. Right. It, it violates the law of cause and effect. Okay. So the only other option remaining is that the universe was created. Now, that presupposes that there must have been something um, or someone 
who existed before it, something that was itself eternal, an uncaused first cause, if you will. But this thing or this person, this force, would have to be superior to the universe to be able to create it. It would have to be different in nature also, because we have said that every material effect must have an adequate cause. So it must be an immaterial um, being or force. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And so in that uh, first verse, we have time, space, and matter all coming into existence right. at the same time. In so the, the creator right. couldn't have uh, you know, been limited by time. He would have to be timeless and spaceless and immaterial, a, a being that transcends all of that. We can also, I think, deduce from the creation that he's powerful and that it's a, it's a personal creator. It's not some abstract idea. Uh, but that it's also a moral being. And so some someone, this is kind of getting ahead of the game a little bit, but someone might step in right here and, and shut you down and say, well, that, that's a God of the gaps argument. What you're doing is you're saying anything that we can't explain by science, you just fill in the gap with God. Oh, well, God did it. I'm going to say that that's not the claim we're making right now. We're making a deduction from the evidence. Remember, we've said that the universe is not eternal. That's a fact. Right. Uh, it can be you know demonstrated. Uh, so it did not create itself, but something must have always existed. If there, if there was ever a time when absolutely nothing existed, and by nothing, <laughs> there, there are debates these days. You can get on YouTube and look it up, and, and people will be debating, what does nothing mean? <laughs> but, I mean, we're talking about no matter, no mind, no spirit, no physical laws, no moral laws. If there was ever a time when nothing existed, then there would be nothing now because nothing produces nothing. Mm. And so someone might counter, well, then where did God come from? You know, the freshman philosophy student, well, where did God come from? Then? Right, right. And, and But when somebody says that, it's clear they haven't understood the argument because the law of causality, again, says every material effect must have a cause. And so what we're saying is whatever has created the universe must itself be immaterial Mm -hmm. and must be non-physical or it must be a spirit and uh, you know all of this that we've said and gone through might seem a little bit complicated i think the more you think about it it really becomes pretty simple and logical yeah but in hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 this exact same argument is made and i think that's important this is not just some philosophy we've come up with in the last you know few decades to argue for the existence of God in a new way, but this is what the Bible writers understood. And the writer said, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Mm-hmm. So in order to explain the existence of the universe and physical reality, you have to understand that whatever created it is outside of that physical reality in itself must be a spiritual, eternal, timeless, you know, spaceless being. I've heard it said that you're either going to put your faith in dirt or you're going to put your faith in God. But one of the things has to be beyond the material. Right. And somehow either dirt did it and all, you know, compressed down to the dot on the page of a textbook, the entire matter of the universe, or there was a being that was beyond it, like you've mentioned. You know, my kids are asking that question right now. This is kind of off topic, but I've got a nine, seven, and five-year-old, and my nine and seven-year-old have asked me in the past few months, if God created everything, where did God come from? So it's 
not just one that skeptics ask, but even those who are being raised in Christian homes look back and wonder where the Creator comes from. So that's a good Bible verse, Hebrews 11, verse 3. I'm going to pluck that out for sharing with my kids. Well, beyond the, the cosmological argument, which I think is a very compelling one, you have one called the teleological, if I'm pronouncing that right, talking about design. Could you maybe offer some commentary on how design helps us know that there's a God? Sure, and, and what I like about this one, just like the cause and effect argument, Jonathan, is um, anybody can understand the argument, and anybody can relate to the argument, as we'll show with the, the Bible verse that we're going to share in a minute, but people can see from their everyday experience that design requires a designer. The universe is obviously designed, and therefore it has a designer. Um, Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So mm -hmm. when you look at the the size and scale of the universe and the complexity, the intricacy of, of design in, in the human body and other organisms, it shows the handiwork of God. Now, there was a man in the 1800s named William Paley who made this argument pretty famous, uh, and he called it the idea of a watchmaker. And he said that if you were walking out in nature, I mean, if you were way out somewhere in the mountains or somewhere that was uninhabited, and uh, you came to the shore of a stream or the ocean, uh, and you saw a watch lying there, you would immediately uh, assume that someone had dropped the watch. Right. In other words, the um, you know inanimate forces of, of nature had not assembled this watch by accident, you know, over time, by chance, but it must have been uh, dropped, and, and more importantly, at one point designed by someone and built by someone. There was an intelligence behind the design. So how have atheists and theists, you know, those who don't believe and do believe in, in a God, how have they responded to that line of thinking? Richard Dawkins in 1986 famously wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker, in which he popularized the idea that, oh yes, there's apparent design in nature, but it just looks like that. It's not really design. In fact, with so many you know, philosophically possible universes, uh, this universe is just the type of thing that happens from time to time. Given enough time, <laughs> given enough chance, not only is the uh, universe that we exist in uh, possible or reasonable, but it's inevitable. Hmm. Um, so the idea is that the design is apparent. And, and this can get kind of technical, but I will say that there are so many sources from creation scientists uh, that are available to us, uh, and they're increasing. And I think it will do the listeners good to get their hands on some of those. Um, but to make it more simple for now, I would just say that attributing design in nature to random impersonal forces, natural selection, it has so many problems with it. Um, but it's kind of like saying that if a tornado went through a junkyard, it might assemble a 747. <laughs> okay. Basically, what people are saying is enough time, enough chance, that's kind of the magic wand, and the impersonal forces of nature will do the unthinkable and the impossible. Mm. So this argument appeals to um, just the, the rationality and the, the reasonable nature of, of humans in general. Hebrews 3 and verse 4 says it like this. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. I like that. That's the design argument. I like it. Now, uh, 
so far, you know, we've maybe said some things that are technical, and, you know, you couldn't put all these notes down on a single little page to have with you. But any Christian could bring up the reasonable reasonableness of a God based on uh, this cosmological argument, where did things come from, the design argument based on what we can observe, how could it just be this way. But you also bring up another one about morality, and I think that's a good one to consider. Tell us about this moral argument for the existence of God. This has got to be one of the most compelling arguments, in my view, for the existence of a a personal, benevolent, all-powerful creator. Ironically, though, Jonathan, um, morality, uh, for example, the existence of evil, is something that's often brought up by the skeptic or the atheist um, with the intention of showing that there could not possibly be a God, or certainly not the God of the Bible. Right. I'll, I'll hear some people often say, if there is a good God, why does evil continue to exist? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and so the, the conversation a lot of times goes in that direction. But to explain this argument at its basic level, just like we said every effect must have a cause, and design requires a designer, this third argument follows that same uh, pattern. Moral law requires a lawgiver. Mm-hmm. And so what we are not saying in this argument is that everybody agrees on morals. That's certainly not true. Uh, there are some things um, that I might believe are wrong and another person believes they're perfectly right and good. We're also not saying that an atheist uh, or anybody who's not a Christian cannot act morally. It's very important to understand that because there are people who are not Christians that do good things, and that Mm -hmm. might be because they uh, understand from the natural law written on the heart what some of their moral obligations are. But what we are saying with the morality argument is people who don't believe in God cannot justify their morals. That is, they can't explain where they come from or why some things are absolutely right and some things are absolutely wrong instead of just a a preference because otherwise what you're left with is um, the idea that you you take you know the poster boy for you know wickedness and evil in our generation and in our knowledge it's Adolf Hitler right right and and the mass murder that that he committed and if you can't acknowledge that morals are absolute and they are anchored to the character of the moral lawgiver from which they came, then the only thing a person can say about the Holocaust is that they just don't prefer it or that it wasn't uh, good for society. But when people say that morality is a social construct for the betterment of the the species or it's, um, you know, an impulse that has evolved through uh, the processes of evolution, they're trying to escape the fact that moral law comes from a moral lawgiver. You know, a a rock that's so big that he can't lift it. Could God create that? Well, could God create a world with no evil? Yes, he could. But in order to do so, he would have to have made us more like robots than people with free will. But as a loving father, God has given us the power to choose. And sometimes we choose evil. And so a world with no evil and free will is a logical impossibility. And so uh, God is responsible for the fact of free will, and we are responsible for the act 
of free will. And I like that. So I'd like to just emphasize it one more time. God is responsible for the fact of free will, and we are responsible for our act of free will. Now, Jesus talks about the evil that can be man-made in Luke chapter 13 about uh, people who had a tower fall on them, this that natural occurring thing, but then there's others who are slaughtered. And uh, his conclusion is, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so um, evil, really, in the end, is not an argument against God, but it's an argument for God. If people are willing to say that there is evil, then they're willing to uh, conclude that good exists. And by labeling something as evil, the skeptic is really admitting that there's a moral standard. The, the premise is that if evil exists, then by extension, good has to exist. You know, by labeling something as evil, a skeptic is really just admitting that there's an absolute standard that's quantifiable and the opposite of evil would be good. And so if good exists, then there is this objective morality that exists. Therefore, God exists. So much of the evil that we know of comes from disobeying God's moral law, and it is worthy of the consequence of disobeying his law. I think about Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so in a world where there is an absolute moral standard, evil, which would be breaking that moral standard, uh, deserves to be punished. And so sin is evil because it violates the nature, the good nature that God both is and has established for us. And so how can God be both just and loving? You know, how can he uh, stand or, or endure the consequences of his morality? Well, he can punish evil. That means he would require justice for those that break the law. And he would also give us the gift of salvation, knowing that we couldn't keep it, that he would uh, send Jesus Christ to take on the punishment for us, and that we would be able to find a way back into his good graces. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this gospel uh, message, it's, it's not only reasonable, but it's the only reasonable explanation for the way the world is. Skepticism is not the result of logic and reason, but really it's the result of sin. Uh, you know, if, if one was to ask a skeptic whether if Christianity could be proven true, would you want to become a Christian? You know, if, if the skeptic was to say, no way, you know, even if it was true, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. You know, why not? Why claim to follow reason and, and, and seek truth if you found out something was true and you, and you didn't want to be a part of it. And so there are reasons for unbelief that, that go beyond um, somebody who is on a quest for truth and they've found out this or that. There's uh, parents and upbringing, there's education, there's scientific materialism, there's intellectual intimidation, uh, hypocrisy, unjust acts that sometimes people see believers do in the name of God. Pride, immorality, evil, pain, and suffering, or bias. All of these things are emotional. Uh, they're not based on logic or reasons. So these objective, uh, these objections, rather, that, that people might have for the existence of God are emotional. 
objections. And so an atheist's attitude is oftentimes there is no God and I hate him. You know, <laughs> how, how could one hate one that doesn't exist? And the reason is because they're seeking emotionally for God not to exist. If they considered it reasonably, then they would see that there is a God and that he requires us to come to his standard and he won't be made or conformed into our standards. This God is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal. He's moral and he's loving and he seeks for you to obey the gospel. You know, when I was talking with Aubrey about it, I know this is just a a one man show at this point. But when I was talking to Aubrey about it, it was so powerful to hear him reach this conclusion because it's such an excellent point or place to offer the gospel invitation. And so I'd like to offer it to you now. You know, I don't offer the gospel invitation a lot on this program because it's intended to be mainly for people who are familiar with the gospel, who are members of the Lord's Church, etc. But if you're listening to this and you have been a skeptic, and you have heard the question, does truth exist, and does God exist? And you've been open-minded to the point where you have seen reasonably that, yes, there is such a thing as truth, and yes, there is such a thing as God, then you also conclude that if there is a moral law giver, then there's a moral law, and if there's a moral law, then there is such a thing as good and evil. And I, at one time or another, have broken that law. Therefore, I stand in need of someone to rectify that, Otherwise, I will be condemned as a result of it. This is the gospel, and we urge you to obey it because the good news is that Jesus is willing to save your soul as much as anyone else's. And the, 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 the good news about overcoming sin is it doesn't matter what we have done. If we are willing to repent of that sin and turn and obey the gospel, Jesus is willing to forgive us of it. Isn't that good news? It's great news. And if you would like to obey the gospel, you can contact me at pureandsimplebible at gmail.com. I would love to help coordinate you with a local church, a local congregation of the Lord's people who can help you overcome sin. This is Jonathan Edwards. And until next time, I invite you to look at the website that I operate at www.pureandsimplebible.com and consider the resources that are there to help inspire and convert you to the gospel, or if you already are converted, to grow your faith in a reasonable, a defensible, and in an evidence-based way so that you can have assurance of the hope that lies within. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true About a judge by the name of Gideon, he was a man like me and you Well, Israel was in some trouble, and God knew what to do He ran all